0: plushcare.com dot slash weight loss. Hello, fellow music nerds! Welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode number 44 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm so glad you could join me here today. I'm coming to you live from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. And as uh, any regular listeners know, I've been exploring the historic Nashville recording studio scene a little bit this season. And this week we're going to go deep down into... um, one of the greatest contributors to that world and one of my favorite pedal steel players and perhaps yours too, Mr. Lloyd Green. Lloyd's history is really an incredible one and it was a great honor to have him here at the studio. He came in and spent a a couple hours here and uh, I had to pinch myself a couple times sitting across from Lloyd Green. First off, um, I have some shows coming up that I would like to share with you. Um, August is around the corner, and in August I will be heading up to Canada with a four-piece band that includes myself and a bass player and a drummer from Vancouver. And uh, Fats Kaplan will be joining me on the fiddle and mandolin and several other things, possibly. We will be playing uh, very soon, coming up at the Edmonton Folk Festival on the August 11-13 weekend followed by a little show in Calgary at a place called the Speakeasy Garage. And then weekend after that, so the 18th to the 20th weekend, will be at the Bear Creek Festival in Grand Prairie, Alberta. So if you're in Western Canada or Alberta, come on out and say hi. Those are both fantastic festivals, and uh, I am looking forward to playing them. You know, studio cats sometimes get a bad rap for being formulaic and playing the same crap over and over again, but really that's a bit of a modern misconception. Because back in the day, these players in Nashville were part of a scene that, yes, churned out song after song on a daily basis, but they had a deep love and sense of adventure on their instruments. And back in those early days, they weren't as confined and restrained as they are now. And Lloyd will be the first guy to tell you that the guys playing now are phenomenal players and musicians. We just don't really get to hear them outside of the confines of modern country music, which is a shame. But back in those days, those confinements and restraints that the, the players have on them now weren't really defined yet, and some of these guys were really able to cut loose, which is a great thing for us as listeners. Anyway, these days, the level of musicianship is mind-boggling, but you really don't get to, to hear them. But back in the day, man, on some of those early George Jones and Johnny Paycheck and Charlie Pride records, these cats were really allowed to play, and they sure did, day after day after day. Lloyd Green came to Nashville in the early 60s, and he had some success playing with some country legends who weren't legends at the time, but now are to us, like Farron Young and George Jones. But early on in his career, he had some setbacks that caused him to quit playing completely for a couple of years, or a few years, I guess. But you really can't keep a player of Lloyd's caliber down forever, and by a series of circumstances that you'll hear some about today, Lloyd began session work again in the mid-60s and became really one of the most recorded players on Music Row. And to me, Lloyd sticks out for being kind of a really bluesy and soulful player while at the same time pioneering certain things about the pedal steel that were blazing a trail for years to come. His innovations on the steel guitar are still standard issue today. His impact on modern music really is immense. In the late 60s, a session came up for Lloyd with a bunch of uh, hippies from California, and they were called The Birds. And they would that session would go on to pretty much define country rock and introduce Graham Parsons to the world as well. And that album, as many of you know, is the legendary sweetheart of the rodeo. Some of the tracks from that album would become total benchmarks in steel guitar, not to mention songwriting and singing. Um, songs like Hickory Wind, 100 Years From Now, and the kickoff track that has an unmistakable Lloyd Green lick off the top is You Ain't Going Nowhere, the Bob Dylan song. They're all classics, and Stand Up Today is some of the finest playing in popular music. But at the time, to Lloyd it was a bit of a grind, I guess. These guys worked slowly, smoked a lot of dope, and took entire days to record a song, which was a far cry from his usual pace of four songs in a three-hour session. Anyway, Lloyd was so generous and kind enough to come and sit down with me at the Hen House and tell me about his history and a bit about, a bit about his playing style and, and his instruments and some of his earliest and greatest sessions, the sweetheart recordings and what he's up to now. And it was a huge honor to have him here. I'd just like to take a sec to thank you all for listening to the show and joining me today. And as always, you can connect with me and the show at www.stevedawson.ca. You can make comments there. Uh, Also, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, and you can make comments there as well. That actually helps us out getting placed well in the iTunes world, which is handy for podcasts, as some of you know. And if you feel so inclined to contribute with a financial donation of any sort, that's really the, the one way that we have of keeping this show going. Uh, you can do that at the website stevedawson.ca as well. Just go to the podcast page and hop on over there, and you can make there's a donation button. You can make a donation of any sort that would be greatly appreciated. And as I mentioned, please subscribe on iTunes and just uh, share it wherever you can. I'd really appreciate that. And now I bring you my conversation with Lloyd Green. Well, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're,
1: it's, you're welcome. It's I'm an honor to have Green. you here. Well, thank you very yeah, much,
0: Steve. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> You know, I'm I'm from Canada, so coming here um, and meeting some of you guys that have been involved in the heyday of the Nashville recording scene is kind of it kind of blows my mind. So I'm, yeah, it's yeah. an
1: era that's gone, and uh, it's yeah. it's sort of like the. Uh, Saga of Gone with the Wind. It's really a, <laughs> a, a, a scene from the past, unfortunately. Yeah, it or, is. I mean, from my vantage point, my vantage point, unfortunately, but yeah, but it, everything moves on. Music changes. Yeah,
0: yeah, when you first walked in, you kind of mentioned this project that you're that you're going to embark on soon—the the the re of the Sweetheart of the Rodeo record. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, uh, this this thing's been in the works for about six months. Uh, the two principal characters. Besides the birds mm-hmm. and the late Graham Parsons, of course, uh, who were involved in the Sweetheart of the Rodeo project, were J.D. Mannis and myself. J.D. Mannis is a California steel player. J.D. Mannis and uh, I were the two principal players. Uh, uh, beyond the uh, birds and and Graham Parsons, who, the late Graham Parsons, who was originally involved with the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album, yeah. those guys came to Nashville in 1968 and did a an album. It was a A real departure for the California rock groups, and sure, and uh, ironically, of all the steel players today uh, that were around my era, the great players—they're all gone. They're all dead. Yeah, except JD Mannis and myself, Mm -hmm. uh, largely. And and we were the two principal. We were the two steel players on that album. Yeah, yeah. And and without the steel guitar on on that album, it's unlikely, I think, that the album would have become a cult albums right. that it has however graham parsons it, it, that becomes argumentative uh, 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 at it that does point. play
0: a huge part of that record though but
1: certainly without the steel guitar uh, on the album it's uh kind of a guy a bunch of rock guys coming to nashville do yeah but anyway so we're still alive we're still healthy <laughs> yeah we're still cognitively alert we can still play <laughs> yeah and we're going to do the album and uh, it's been to works for about six months. And a producer from uh, Denver, Colorado named John Macy is, uh, uh-huh. handling, is spearheading the project. And, okay. And now it's taken on a lot of different proportions with uh, some big uh, entities, which I shouldn't mention probably right now, okay. uh, who are involved in it. I, I might just mention peripherally the Country Music Hall of Fame. But yeah. beyond that, I, I'd, I'd prefer not to talk about it. But we're going to do the instrumental version of it, and, and it's uh, nice. kind of... Taking on a life proportion of its own, and at the very very worst, it will become a concomitant to the uh, to the sweetheart of the rodeo album. And, right, right. And we'll do the exact songs that are in the album, hopefully yeah, in the yeah. order, in the same sequence order, yeah. of the album, and
0: with you playing the tracks that you played on, and JD playing on the tracks no, well, that you played we, we, on. No,
1: well, no, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're gonna okay. it's, it's still guitar instrumental, but but uh, we, we'll take uh, liberties with the way we present it. Now, some of the things like. You ain't going nowhere. The Bob Dylan song that that leads the album off. I will yeah. do the signature stuff because I played okay. on that. Right. And and certain songs in the album that we each played on will be. Uh, I've got it designated as uh, that we follow the the signature at least of the player, and then yeah. we, we yeah. kind of vary from that point on. We have to be kind of creative with the sing because we don't have lyrics unless we have some. We we, we got some vocalists that are going to be involved with this. Yeah, you can't have some talk guess. about too. Yeah. And, okay. So
0: <laughs> Top Secret. Well maybe by well, the time uh, this comes out, this doesn't come out super quick. So like by the time it's oh, well, out by the
1: time this comes out, it'll be then, a fate accompli here. Yeah. Then we
0: may be able to even like uh, yeah. put a couple uh, of uh, samples from it Wonderful. on there. But yeah, that's excellent. So are you recording it here or in Colorado or uh, we're California? recording here in Nashville.
1: Okay. Um
0: and with a bunch of Nashville players oh, yeah. rhythm oh, yeah. section and yeah.
1: Some of the, the, the top cats, man, Russ Paul and yeah, yeah. rhythm guitar and maybe right. guitars and uh uh-huh and other players i can't mention dennis crouch on bass yeah uh john gardner on drums and beautiful It's going to be uh 18 players of course yeah
0: man yeah so when you look back on a record like that like we can get into that record a, a little bit as as we go but when you look back at at um the sound of that record uh and you you know you've progressed you've changed as a player and as a musician and uh, that was relatively it wasn't like super early in your career but it was early-ish do you look back on your particular sound and tone as something that has changed since then and you find it hard to kind of get back into that mindset or
1: well it would be hard to play that way again that that (laughs) tone yeah I mean I I evolved as a player I mean I'm I'm morphed into many players because uh, not not copying anybody else but but I, I recorded with so many artists and right and uh I had a lot of different styles with with various mm-hmm. artists and they were always with my signature but but uh you know to to bottom line that about that album I mean my tone changed it, it got away from that nasally trebly sound that that i was into in that era, and kind of uh, evolved into a more mid rangey uh, more pleasant sound i mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's p- product of aging. I, I don't know. You know, it just sounds better in my ears. But yeah. But uh, certainly, I don't sound to be the same player I did in nineteen sixty eight. Right, and, right. And I don't. Been, I'd been doing sessions for years at the time we recorded yeah. that album. And even even in nineteen sixty four, when I started doing sessions, I was in my early twenties. So mm-hmm. uh, it was. Uh, I mean, there was a, a huge difference in the way I played in, in those four years. I was yeah, of I was really evolving. That at a was, rapid pace. Yeah, you were progressing quickly. And and all this stuff was new. I wasn't uh, the. It was a wide open, uh, wild west. Right. And they didn't want me to play like anybody but myself. So uh, I had free reign. I had all these ideas, man. So I, it was it was <laughs> uh, it was the greatest period for the steel guitar I think ever uh yeah, in, in yeah. the 60s and and early through the mid 70s in Nashville it it is when the explosion of country music and the Nashville sound became dominant on the world stage. Yeah, totally. And uh, the steel guitar was at its uh never greater it's never been at, better. it was I at totally the top agree. of the mountain musically yeah. at that time.
0: Yeah. Um so could we like let's talk about a little bit uh, uh where you come from. I know you are originally you were born in in Mississippi, right?
1: That's correct. I um, was,
0: And and did you start playing when you lived there, or you also moved to? Um, were you in Mobile, Mobile, Alabama? Is that where you
1: moved to? Uh, we moved to Mobile when I was four years old. My dad oh, okay. was working in the war effort there, and yeah. so when I was seven years old, I started playing a Hawaiian guitar. And okay, when I was ten years old. I was playing professionally. So,
0: so the Hawaiian thing, like I've heard a lot of people in those days, like kind of getting into that via like. Um, uh, like in Canada, we had Sears catalogs that had Hawaiian guitars and they'd even come to your door and and offer lessons and things like that. Was that something that, like, how did you get into Hawaiian guitar? That was
1: exactly, uh, and I think, I don't know who started the the routine, but it was the Oahu course in, in the United okay. States, OAHU. Yeah, sure. I've and it was the Oahu. same thing. They came around uh, soliciting for uh, students <laughs> really? and they didn't take students uh, that, as young as me, but for some reason the the guy gave let me do it, and I had a yeah. uh, photographic memory, so I could play everything he played oh cool back and he thought he didn't understand this and so he took they they anyway they they signed me up and uh, and uh, I quickly became their prize student that they showed off you know really? around the south and and in Bloxy, Mississippi, where another big class of a couple hundred students were and and then they made photographs when I was ten yeah. years old that they used as an advertising. I've seen thing. that. I've seen that picture.
0: Yeah, there's there are two of them. There's actually. two. Okay,
1: but that's the way they did it. And I don't know yeah. if Sears uh, copied them or they copied Sears, but it doesn't, doesn't matter. In yeah, in the yeah, long range, but they all operated on the same. Uh, probably on the same uh, MO modus right. operandi I yeah. think
0: so you had a like you you would have bought an Oahu like a six string Oahu lap well not, that...
1: in, not initially uh, they, they furnished one I mean they furnished an acoustic six string oh uh, acoustic okay yeah oh yeah, yeah there were uh, you, you had to if you bought a, if you had an electric one you had to buy it okay <laughs> now you could do that now yeah. I, obviously I didn't get one uh, initially yeah so they furnished one and you'd have to pay a dollar a dollar fifty cents for each lesson during the week
0: and that included the guitar uh, the like use, rental the, the loan of the guitar right. yes okay
1: so i bought my first uh electric guitar highway guitar uh, which was a rickenbacker yeah from the company from the right. from the music Obama. teacher uh-huh. uh she had them on display in the where we took the lessons you know downtown uh, mobile it's
0: very crafty
1: and I, I remember I paid ninety five dollars for my uh, a Wahoo. I mean, my Rickenbacker steel, and
0: that's actually quite a bit back in those uh, days, in right?
1: Nineteen forties, yes. Yeah, wow. And wow. 100, 105 dollars for my Wahoo app. Nice. <laughs> and that was that was what I was working into bars and clubs with yeah. soon in Mobile.
0: Okay, uh, and and so that was a six string.
1: That was six string, yes.
0: Okay. And tuned like a C six kind of six string. Well, version? Well, I had thing. three
1: tunings. I had okay. uh, like a an yeah. with A sixth. With the G on top, high G on top. Okay. With, as far as you can go with you know. Yeah. With six strings, and then then I, I could tune it to E. Yeah. Major. Yeah. Open or C minor. Okay. Right. So I had a minor tuning and and the A and the E tuning.
0: And in the lessons when they were teaching you Hawaiian stuff, was it? like from a book or something or Well really they were
1: or- professional uh they were pop songs pop songs of the era by uh, okay. major uh artist and Yeah. And uh the teacher would play the song uh, and you'd have it. Well, yeah, I memorized it <laughs> immediately. So I didn't have That's to do awesome. any studying. You know, I was yeah. getting I was way ahead of the curve on right. this stuff and Right. And, and,
0: so you took to it pretty naturally like the whole idea of I did indeed. Of the lap it was uh, and, it
1: seemed yeah. it, it was natural I, mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was just one of those uh, serendipitous events that yep. that gentleman came by and, wow, cool. and did that lesson for me because I, I had shown no musical inclinations prior to that.
0: So you mentioned that you were playing professionally by the age of 10. What kind of bands
1: were you playing with? Like, well, it <laughs> oh, was pretty that? primitive, Yeah, Steve. <laughs> uh, the first band I worked, it was, really wasn't a band. It was a duo. It okay. was, a, it was a, a gentleman from the Philippines named Emmanuel... Emmanuel Bates, B A T E S, okay, and he played rhythm guitar. Yeah, and he had a harmonica on a rack around yeah. his neck, so he played uh, harmonica uh-huh. as he played rhythm guitar, and he sang. So he was he was a kind of a one man band, band, and I yeah. was the other musician. Awesome. Are so, there any <laughs> recordings of that? I, I did some early recordings when I was. Um, 10 or 11 years old and i don't think they exist anymore oh, they were they were on 78 oh yeah the okay. old 78 rpms I, I was singing too really before my voice changed i could sing but <laughs> you know steel players can't sing <laughs> <laughs> um
0: and uh so was that something that you played locally around mobile with with yeah, him? i played
1: in the bars and clubs and i you know i was getting better and better what Bible. kind
0: of tunes was it like country tunes
1: yeah it became uh, from that early st- st- i don't i don't remember what we were we were doing just pop songs with mm-hmm. emmanuel betis but then my next band was a regular band like five or six pieces of, of country music okay our or hillbilly music probably called in those days like
0: or, s- comparable to western swing at that yeah, time yeah okay. what,
1: whatever the country music of right the, or hillbilly music was uh, yeah. of the night, late 1940s that's what we were playing all the hit songs of the era
0: so, what years would this have been?
1: I, I, it sounds like I'm 190 <laughs> years old. <laughs> uh, 1947 wow. until 19. Well, I left for college in, when I was 17. So, okay, uh, I so, played in bars and clubs, and but I I was playing with really good bands by the time I left Mobile. Right, <laughs> I mean, really good bands, and I was yeah. the best steel player around. So, yeah, I bet I, I was. Everybody who came to Nashville just about uh, in in my era, were the best of wherever they came from, right. you know.
0: So when you were playing in Mobile, like up until you were 19 or whatever you said. 17. 17. <laughs> uh, was that all still on the six-string Rickenbacker? Oh, no, no,
1: no, no. I had uh, evolved in uh, at age 14 uh-huh. to a double-neck Fender.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, with pedals?
1: No, I made my own pedals. Uh, Bud nice. Isaacs, uh, there was a guy named Bud Isaacs yeah. who cut slowly yeah. with Webb Pierce in Bill 1953 Pierce, yeah. and that was the first modern uh, country pedal steel guitar. Right. Everybody who could play it that in that era, mostly everybody, mm-hmm. uh, we we were stopped in our tracks and By that immediately song. everybody uh, where in the United States wherever they were yeah. they heard that record yeah and they wanted to know what was happening something fundamentally changed right. And I f- it took me about three hours to figure it out, yeah. Because I went to the radio station, and they let, they would let me go in the back room with the record and listen. Uh-huh. And once I figured it out, then I I had a guy make me a homemade pedal on it. it how did it you figure out? Primitive.
0: Like, had you seen a picture? Like, how did you figure no. out that? Just, I just knew that there knew was something a was going pitch on.
1: actuation change was occurring right, so it it just uh, deductively it it yeah the, you had to be pulling strings some way <laughs> so I it's figured. funny
0: that you ended up with a pedal like instead of some weird like
1: well yeah and God knows what so many guys around the country what they wound up with yeah, but everybody had a similar experience to me. I found out later who was playing in right, that era at that, that, time. that became really prominent players and
0: yeah. Who were the steel guitarists that were influencing you at that time?
1: Two steel players, uh, and they weren't pedal steel players. Mm-hmm. Primarily Jerry Bird, the great Hawaiian yeah. player, and and only because, uh, well, not only I would say because of several reasons. He he played. I was a pretty bright kid, and and I listened uh, the, to the nuances of all this stuff. He was a uh, he had all he, he played in tune. First and yep. foremost, steel players didn't play in tune. Hardly anybody <laughs> played in tune in that era. But steel player he played perfectly in tune. Yeah. He played with beautiful tone. Yeah. He played with emotion. Yeah. He played with intonation. His intelligence that he uh, uh, dedicated to that instrument, you could tell. I mean, he was like speaking with that instrument. I, so he was he was my primary influence. And then when I heard the Hank Williams records, Don Helms. Right. And I became real good friends with those gentlemen when I came to Nashville. Okay, they, cool. They remained friends until their deaths.
0: Now, at that time, before you had hit Nashville, did you ever get a chance to see either of those guys?
1: Uh, No. So the but main... I could play I could play all their stuff exactly like they played. Really? Okay. Yes.
0: Um, and like, did any, rec- any Jerry Bird recordings stick out to you, or was it just like anything oh, yeah, you did? Mo-
1: anything. But Moon- Moonland uh, was such a significant record. Okay. I mean, God, nobody remembers Moonland, but it was... I could still play it. It's yeah, uh, yeah. It was probably nineteen forty-eight or nine. Okay, and it was it's a magnificent recording. Yeah, mean, yeah, Of of artistry. He was an artist, but but then, then I got I got it later, of course, influenced by uh, the the more modern players of the time. Yeah. Uh, Carl Smith steel player Johnny Sybert. Yeah, I, I could play all that stuff that the Carl Smith was record I could play er- everything that was recorded in Nashville way before yeah. I got here. Yeah. by the time I was fourteen or fifteen, I. And it was a lot simpler then than than it became later. Then right. Once yeah, of course. I yeah. was part of the scene of recording and and, and Rug, Howe and Weldon Myrick and yeah. and Buddy Emmons and Jimmy Day. It, were it,
0: people like Buddy Emmons recording way before you were? Uh, he guess, was a, maybe, a little bit.
1: Uh, two, he was here about. Uh, I think he got here, uh, came, arrived in Nashville in about. Early nineteen fifty five, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe middle six uh, fifty five. Yeah. Maybe nineteen fifty six. He was he was here probably a year, year and a half before I got here. Okay. So yeah, he was he was recording. Yeah, yeah. Of course. And Jimmy Day was the first really modern good player who Yeah uh, that I, I uh,
0: Would you have heard Jimmy Day through Willie Nelson or somebody no, else? No, through Ray Price. Oh well, through Ray Price, okay. Or uh, right. Crazy Arms. Right. Th- 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 yeah. th- which
1: my another friend of mine a great Player and great, guy, an original player, uh, yeah. a, a stylist. Um, Ralph Mooney played steel. Right. I mean, he wrote that that song. By the right. way, okay. wrote Crazy art Oh, he did, eh? Yeah, he actually wrote the song. He actually, wow. well, he co-wrote it. But yeah, I, I always say he pro- wrote it. So I don't know. I don't know the co-writer was a woman. I don't know what okay connection. I never met her, but yeah, but uh, wow, yeah, he wrote it. But but certainly Jimmy Day was uh, the first modern stylist who with pedals who. I had played with artistry that I, I, I really listened to.
0: And had you had a chance to see him as well, or not not at all? Like, did I did. I did. saw okay. him,
1: and we became friends long before I came to Nashville. Okay, so he I, would have been through like playing in, yeah, Mobile, in Mobile or something. And, and, yeah. and he used to come out to the clubs I played in, I, and I played with some of the Opry Acts, too. I, yep. When I was 15, 16, I started working with Opry Acts that came to Na- Mobile without bands. And, and they, they would, would pick up bands? Yeah. Oh, okay. And,
0: Is that how you hooked up with Farron Young?
1: No, that's another story. You sure you want to hear this? I want to hear that story. Yeah, <laughs> I was on a scholarship to Southern Mississippi, okay. an academic scholarship.
0: For what? What were you taking?
1: No, an academic scholarship uh-huh. for scholastic. Right. I was. Uh, it was one weekend. I I'd played with so many of these people by then on, on the Grand Ole Opry, and and I, I was really getting a yen for this. And I I was I was in a decision making time. I, I was going to have to signed with the military because I was an r o c c and I would have had to go in the military as an officer uh, oh, okay. if I graduated yeah and uh and I was on just on the eve of having to sign once you uh completed your second year of college in that era I suppose i don't know what it is today, but uh, you signed with the military they were financing the rest of your education if you if necessary but but uh, you were in the military essentially from the third year of college on really. And you were already in the Army, or or in, in my case, it was the Army, the ROCC at Southern Mississippi and Hattiesburg. Yeah. And that one, that's kind of stopped me because I realized I was locked in for two or three years beyond college. Yeah. And I listened to the Opry, Grand Ole Opry, one night. I was probably one of the, I might have been alone in the dormitory. I mean, uh-huh. it was on a weekend, it was so eerily quiet and dark. And, and I just turned my little radio on and listened to Grand Ole Opry. And, and I said, you know. I can play as good as those people. I'm going to Nashville. Yeah. And it was a just a spontaneous decision. Yeah. And I was in Nashville the next week. My parents thought I was insane, of course. Really? You can't do Did this. you actually but quit university quit, and stuff? I quit everything. Really? I left. Yeah. And I, I, I was going to go back. I I had plans to come back. Okay. To go back and finish my education. Because I was interested in uh-huh. psychology. I was interested in uh, geology, anthropology, everything. But mm-hmm. But I... I, I didn't. Uh, uh, I didn't foresee getting married. <laughs> so okay. Well, my, my late wife. She, uh-huh. We met when I just shortly after I got here, and we were married until her death. Oh wow! Uh, last year. Wow. Uh, the day I got here, I knew where to go. It was a place in East Nashville called Mom Up Churches at six twenty Basketball Street. Okay. And that's where everybody there were every major singer and musician that ever came through Nashville in the nineteen f- fifties lived at that place at one time or It was another. like a
0: boarding house or something? It was a
1: boarding house. Okay. And she had, I think, eight or nine rooms. Oh, wow. And it was $5 a week. I mean, you know, yeah. perfect. And I knew where to go. I'd been told where to go okay. by the last band, the nine-piece Western swing band I was working in, Mobile, a guy named Curtis Gordon, who was on RCA and Mercury Records, both during uh-huh. that era. And so I, I went there, and, and they they had a jam session going on with musicians every afternoon. All the musicians, they'd gather in the living room and, and have a jam session. And here, Jimmy Day lived there, and Howard White, who played, he was a steel player, a non-pedal player who played with Hank Snow and yeah. and uh, Ferland Husky and Al right. Shaw Hawkins and those people of the era.
0: They were all living there?
1: They were all living there. Red Stewart of uh, with uh, Pee Wee King. and. Yeah. But Jimmy Day became my roommate, by the way. Really? Until six months later when Dot, and my late wife, Dot, yeah. and I got married. But but Howard White, the the wonderful, uh, he, he, and he remained my friend until his death. I, I obviously got in the jam session. I wanted him to hear me play. And yeah, yeah. So, you know, they kind of...
0: That's a good opportunity, actually, for a newcomer, right? Uh,
1: man, yeah. I just walked in town. It was...
0: There's Ferlin Husky living December next
1: door. December 26th, 1956. <laughs> yeah. And he, so he... After we the jam says he he said come here boy he called me boy he was <laughs> he was uh, about eight or nine years older right. I guess and it's mid twenties he said <laughs> he said if well, you got a job I said no he said you realize you're going to starve in this town he said there's a lot of good players here uh-huh. everybody's good he, I said well I know that but I am too and he said I know but he said you, if you hadn't got a job you need a job he said you want to work with Fair and Young I said
0: yeah. Did you know who Farron Young was?
1: Oh, of course. Yeah. I knew all his records. Okay. I knew all everybody's records.
0: But you hadn't played with him before? No, him, I
1: right? never met Farron. He <laughs> called Farron on the phone. Really? Farron had lived at that boarding house for a short period of time too earlier yeah. in his career. So he just happened to be needing a steel player and I got the job. That's really? I, yeah. Well, he took me on, on consignment sort of. Right. He said, I, I've got a seven-day tour coming up if I like you playing. He, he was a uh, profane guy. He, he, uh-huh. he Farron was a... I had a year and a half of education, real education with him <laughs> on the road. But I, I later started recording all his records in the mid-1960s from then on. But he said, if I like you playing, I'll tell you after the first night. If I don't, then and there was a string of expletives and you, you're on your own. <laughs> and after the, But you after,
0: stuck around, you made it.
1: After the first night, he said, well, you got the job. Yeah. He said, you got to have a guitar, guitar though, because that piece of uh, shit! Expletive! Uh, he said, "That <laughs> your plan is an embarrassment." He thir- referred to himself in the third person. That's that that piece of shit you're playing is a is a, an embarrassment to the great Farron Young. Oh, he so said, fun. "You can't be seen on stage with." I said, "Well, I can't afford a steel." Yeah. And he had a triple neck Bixby steel guitar that he had bought for the previous steel player, the first steel player in, ever in the Farron Young country deputy band. Yeah, that was that was called in his era. And, and a guy named Joe Vincent, and and it was Farron's guitar though, and it had one pedal on it. Oh, really? And uh, but I was still playing that first primitive Defender. Fender that I had made the the primitive pedal on, so it was yeah. it was a pretty uh, it looked like a you yeah. know something from the. It was time to graduate. <laughs> oh, it was. You know, <laughs> so he was right. I, I he needed something more, a little more class on stage. Yeah. And, so he let me use that for the year and a half I was with him, and okay. Anyway, that's that was the start of my putative career. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, so you played with him uh, on the road strictly, like you weren't recording with him or anything in those early days.
1: No, I wasn't recording with him. I did do a session. I was nineteen, and I, I uh, my first session was with George Jones. Right. Three yeah. Mu- three months after I got here. Okay. A song called on Mercury Records called "Too Much Too Water to- Running on the Bridge."
0: Yeah, I love that tune. On that song, like. It, you totally got your shit together. Like the the tone is killer. Those like I just listened to it last night to get a little refresher and like that the solo there's guitar solo and twin fiddle and and you they're all short but they're all like right up in your face and like yeah. awesome sounding. Do you remember much about that
1: session? I me- I remember everything about the session. Tell me about it. The guitar uh, solo you refer to just before my steel solo was the greatest guitar player who ever graced Nashville, Hank Garland. Ah, beautiful. He was. Uh, if he hadn't been in, injured in the car accident that damaged his brain in 1963, or yeah. just just a short on the eve before I got into sessions, we'd have been working together all the time. Yeah, I mean, I loved Hank Garland. He was so brilliant and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and intellectually he was brilliant and musically he was a, he, he played jazz he had a jazz combo in printer's alley in nashville oh yeah that he played every weekend the greatest jazz players of the era flew into nashville to see him play jazz wow he would have, he, he probably wouldn't have stayed in nashville had he survived uh i mean intellectually survived his brain was uh, damaged beyond yeah. repair when he had the car wreck yeah but I think he would have eventually gone to New York or right. to London or to Somewhere sh- where Chicago he... or L.A., San Francisco. He he would have been the he was already uh, he was probably already the maybe the best jazz player, yeah. guitar player in America. But yeah. he played all this simple hillbilly stuff too, <laughs> with equal finesse. You know? Right. But he okay. And he had, back to the George Jones session. He played guitar. Yeah. Uh, a disc jockey from WSM, of all people, played drums named T. Tommy Catrere, famous disc jockey. Really. That was at WSM Radio.
0: How, how did that come about? Why was the DJ playing? I have no idea. was <laughs> <laughs> just there on the, on the kit. I, I, I,
1: I was just the steel player. I was right. so glad to be there. Uh, the fiddle player, you said twin fiddles. I, I, there was
0: There's twin fiddle on it, yeah.
1: I don't know who the second was. I don't have a mental vision of that, but Shorty Lavender, uh, okay. who played in Farron Young's band, was one of the fiddle players. Okay. The piano player and leader, and the producer, I think, was uh, Marvin Hughes who was head of Capitol Records. Really? So uh, the, the the recording industry community was still a kind of a loose-knit, not quite cohesive, organized right. Right. Okay. unit at that time because Nashville hadn't become a big recording center. It, it was just on the eve. When Elvis Presley started cutting at RCAB, then it started becoming something special. What uh, year would that 1957. Shown? That was 57. March okay. of 1957, week right. when I cut that with him. Wow. And uh, let's see, bass, bass, bass. Uh, I think. Oh, I think it was uh, Tom Pritchard who played yeah. also in Farron's band. Okay. Uh,
0: and what uh, studio would that have been in? Do you remember?
1: It was a television studio. It was right. Oh. I, I'm not quite sure the name, but for a long time I thought it was RCA B. But yeah. RCA B was still about a month away from opening. Oh, okay. I, I later found. So out. So it was Music
0: Row then. Not even. Was this like pre before anything was really going on there?
1: Yeah, actually, RCA B was uh, was uh, the first. Uh, that was sort of the epicenter. Actual of, studio yeah. and uh, f- and uh, Owen Bradley had uh, Bradley's Studio, which later became Columbia Studio. Right. But it was it was only a block away. Those were the two major studios. Then and the Fred, Quonset
0: Hut wasn't there yet.
1: I think when I cut that, the Quonset Hut wasn't there. It, it could okay. have been, but yeah. but I didn't cut in the Quonset Hut uh, yeah. my first sessions, but. By the time I started recording in 1964, it was there. The Quonset hut was a military kind of a oval-shaped, you know, thing that they used to use during the Second World War. I think that Owen Bradley and Harold Bradley uh, had bought and had it brought in, in and, and it just wonderfully became. Yeah. Uh, they designed the studio, which became a world class studio, oh, our, our, the Quad Columbia Studio B. Yeah, but so the, initially there were only two studios: RCA B, the, the RCA Big Studio A was not yet. That came along in nineteen sixty-five. Okay. So nineteen fifty-seven, RCA B and and Owen Bradley's uh, studio and and, yeah. and, and um, maybe Fred Foster's down on Seventh Avenue. Oh, okay. Okay. And there was one more place called yeah. The Globe, I believe, on, on Broadway okay, in Nashville.
0: Had you met George Jones before, or was this the first yeah, time? Yeah,
1: actually, George had worked just worked a tour with us, a month-long tour in Canada. Oh, really? And he me, asked me to record with him, so okay. that's and how that came. But so you've
0: been in Canada with him, with George? Yeah, we
1: had, what happened, see, in, in that era, no, era, nobody could afford bands except the major acts, and right. the major three acts of country music were... Uh, Jim Reeves, he was the number one uh-huh. singer, uh, number one pa- paid act. And f- uh, f- Hank Snow, second, and nice. Farron Canadian. Young. Canadian, there you go. And so they all <laughs> had bands. And and we had Patsy Cline, who opened the shows for us. Really? Yeah, she she was the show opener. She got $100 a night. Wow. <laughs> and George Jones was the second act on the show. He got $200 a night.
0: <laughs> okay, so you were playing with Farron Young, but also backing up.
1: All those people. George Passy Jones Klein. and Patsy Cline. Yes, of course, yeah. Wow, that's, that
0: was, uh, that's a that's That's it worked in those up, days. Man. If
1: Holy you were on the shit. road with Jim Reeves, whoever was playing with Jim Reeves, they had to back the other the opening acts too, you know, because yeah, yeah. they couldn't afford bands right. naturally.
0: So you'd been playing with George every night up in Canada. And, yeah, and then for, a came month, back and for a month. For a month, yeah. For a month, yeah, that's, well. And was he pretty flawless in the studio? Like, did that song get tracked really easily and quickly?
1: Yeah, we... Uh, we did uh, four songs on that session, as I recall. We we only did two songs with George, yeah, and then we did uh, two more songs. So we did four songs on the entire session. The other two with, was were duets with a female singer named Virginia Spurlock. Okay. Don't know. I think he might have later done an album with her. I'm not sure, but okay. But she, they did a single. I, I've never heard it, but
0: that's like really your first experience in Nashville in a studio, right? Right. Were you freaked out, or was it just like no, hey, no? Know, but no. Uh,
1: but but my uh, immaturity and uh, and <laughs> arrogance. I I said to myself, this is where I belong. This is where I'm going to be the rest of my life. You I'm, were right. Well, but I wasn't right. <laughs> See, let me, uh, my next session was literally six years later.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. Actually, I wanted to ask you about that period because there is this long period where. Uh, that where... period was a,
1: my dark period. Okay. I mean, it, it was very difficult. We struggled to survive and So you were married, you were yes. doing I some had two children, touring,
0: two kids, okay?
1: And it was a very like there were so many other people. I mean, it was just we just struggled to survive and dot yeah. made most of the money. I yeah. made what I could play and steal guitar with various people.
0: But it wasn't you weren't you were barely getting by at that. Oh, point? we were uh,
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, we we struggled.
0: Was the touring not consistent or something or was the money just really crappy?
1: Uh, well, both. Both uh farron was not look what happened after elvis became elvis presley became the dominant singer of the 50s yeah then every singer in nashville decided they wanted to be pop singers right and everybody started cutting pop records uh and they all had one or two hits and then they their careers flamed out they didn't they quit using steel guitar that Uh, was the bad part yeah so it was a bad period not only for music in Nashville or our formative period and and a uh, changeable period but yeah. but it was a terrible period for for musicians particularly steel, steel players steel right I, I would just take pickup jobs with whoever I could get you know with Furman Husky or uh-huh. or with uh, Hawkshaw Hawkins and Gene Shepard and
0: were you playing on the Opry yeah regularly I was playing on too?
1: the Opry regularly on weekends whoever would they didn't have a staff band oh, at that time they so didn't. Okay. so you could pick up whoever wanted you to play with them you know you'd look at the list one would the musicians could look at a list on the uh, tack to the wall by really? the, by the uh, dressing room yeah on on friday and saturday night and see who was going to be playing the following week yeah and then you go up and say hey you need a steal next week ah, okay and that's the way it worked
0: <laughs> so there was no you didn't officially have that gig or anything it was just like no, it was just pickup,
1: right no there was no gig at the opera it was all uh uh there was no staff band that wasn't formed yet okay that was years in the future right right i and, turned it down when it came along and because i was so busy in the studio right
0: And would you be playing at the Opry like every week pretty much then at that point? If I could, could, (laughs) because it
1: provided just a wee bit of income, not much, but yeah,
0: enough to, you know, that period happens. And, and what signaled the end of that, like from going from making a couple recordings back in the day and then having this period that things were not happening. And then what happened where all of a sudden you're working Four hundred <laughs> sessions a year. It,
1: it, it gets a little uh, <laughs> kind of surreal and uh, spacey at this point because I quit playing for two years. Did you really? I, I was so disillusioned. Yeah. And I I didn't t- touch my guitar between 1961 and 1963. Wow. I couldn't afford to go back to school. You were I, in
0: your twenties, I guess. I'm or... still
1: in my, yeah, mid twenties. Yeah. Yeah. Early twenties, and and I um I, I sold shoes. In Nashville. In Nashville. And then a whole set of circumstances, which I'm not going to, because it doesn't sound believable to begin with, happened, Uh that I had no control over, and I started playing again. I didn't even have my union card. I couldn't play on the opera anymore, because you had to have a union, a musician's union card to uh, enable you to play on the opera And and I got my union card back through another extraordinary (laughs) set, because it cost money. I didn't have money, but anyway... You got it. Once I got to playing again, within a year after I had not played for two years, Mm -hmm. I didn't even have a modern setup. I still had a primitive setup with only two pedals on my steel. What
0: what steel did you have at this point? I had
1: a little Rickenbacker double neck that Shot Jackson had put two pedals on that only made a simple primitive E to A change. So I was already six years behind the curve uh, of all the steel players in Nashville. They had six or seven pedals, and they had a lot more changes. and. I, I, all I had was, were the ideas. Right. <laughs> but, and I couldn't execute them because I didn't have the equipment. Uh-huh. And anyway, Shot Jackson, another series of events, uh, fixed me that, that the guitar you heard on, uh, uh, no, not on the George Jones, that was the trivial neck. Bigsby. uh Bigsby B- uh, of Farron yeah. Young's. The guitar I had nine months before I started. Literally nine months before I started recording sessions was my first real guitar, modern guitar, where I could play the ideas I had in my head, yep. and I was equal to everybody else far as the setup. So I was at least on uh, this level ground with all the steel players.
0: And what was that instrument? What was that guitar?
1: It was a double-neck Bigsby that uh, had been that shot made into a Showbud.
0: Oh, okay. So this is was Showbud. Did it exist or it, yes, but oh, it did. Okay. But
1: he knew I needed a guitar.
0: Yeah. So he so he rigged you up one out he, of an he, old Bixby. He took this
1: Bigsby and made it into a show bud for me. <laughs> nice, that's and that's cool. what I used for the first uh, nine months I was recording sessions.
0: So that's an E nine and C six neck, yeah, like a regular mm-hmm. pedal steel. And and how many pedals did it have?
1: I had six pedals on the floor, and I had two knee levers. Okay, and that's that was pretty much standard in those yeah. days. The other two knee, knee levers did not yet exist. Came later. And 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 then all additional pedals, that, knee yeah. levers that guys added, but yeah. but uh, the Eta Elf, that was far in the future. I invented that one, you know, in nineteen sixty eight. That thanks, didn't man. exist until I cut <laughs> I cut D I V O R C E with Tammy Wynette, and yeah, and it became a big record. And yeah, and that all the steel players became a, the as part of the tuning. Now, of course, that nine months after I got this guitar, I was. Uh, on Music Row, I was working for c as a executive. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, right. It's bizarre. That, that uh, is weird. The late Roy Drusky was head of the office, and he opened the first CSAC office in Nashville, which was one of the three licensing agencies you have: BMI, BMI ASCAP, and, and, and c Yeah. And they had their first office. He was the first head of the Nashville office. I was his first assistant. Okay. And
0: that's just because he needed a job, like he needed a day job.
1: He Well, he needed an assistant. Okay. And I was wanting to get out of the shoe store. <laughs> <laughs> and I was working on the opera with him. Yeah, okay. I, and it, there were other people applying for it, but he hired me finally. I, I, he was such an indecisive man. He was a beautiful man, but uh-huh. he couldn't make decisions. It would yeah. like to drove me crazy yeah. until he finally hired me. And they didn't realize that they were going to finance my career as a musician, c Okay. So I had, I, here I am on Music Row with an office, a secretary. Yeah. And I can do sessions anytime I'm called for, but nobody thought I was going to be called for any sessions. Well, the first week I'm on Music Row, I, 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 did a, I recorded an album for RCA, uh, an instrumental album <coughs> called The Nashville All Stars. Oh, okay. With Jerry Reed. and... How did that come about? Another set of coincidences that. Really? But the first week, just take my word for it, the first week I'm out there, I do an album for RCA, three sessions, which more money than I'd ever made in Nashville in one week, Yeah, and a demo for a company called uh, uh, Yona Music, which was uh-huh. part of Chart Records. Okay. And from that, uh, I became leader on all the Chart Records, which had Lynn Anderson. Because it a, went so well. Yeah and you were, and I I became leader on a lot, right. about 40% of what I was recording during my career but but that was my first leader se- uh, contract and then the Johnny Paycheck stuff came along the early Johnny Paycheck little darling yeah and this is the this is the great era for Johnny Paycheck you know it gets yeah, polished those, later with those Billy Sheryl.
0: yeah those records are so great sounding too
1: yeah i think so too and
0: so was that? Did that kind of signal uh, a resurgence of the steel guitar? The interest yeah. in the steel guitar?
1: What what happened? Uh, there was a steel player who had brought it back to life, actually resuscitated. Pete Drake had come to Nashville in nineteen sixty, right. yeah, and Pete had no competition on Music Row.
0: Ah, interesting. And there was n- there was no like
1: no competition. No steel. He, uh, there was player a player Walter Haynes, cool. who had played steel. He he would occasionally get sessions. They weren't calling Buddy Emmons and Jimmy Day anymore uh, for. A lot of reasons. Not because they weren't great players, but uh, there was problems. You had to be dependable. You had to be on time. You had to be okay. uh, socially uh, 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 yep, amenable. You know, it. people have to feel comfortable with right, you. Right. Of course. They, they don't. That's the way it works in any business. Yeah. And sessions are a prime example. If totally. They don't feel comfortable with you in a session. I don't care if you're the best in the world. They, they don't, don't call you again. Yeah. yeah. And the irony is that nobody tells you; they just don't call you. <laughs> right. So that's the only way you know they don't like me.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good—that's a good way to gauge it, right? Yeah,
1: and so so they weren't using the best two steel players in Nashville okay. on sessions. They had and were Pete,
0: they notoriously difficult or something? Jimmy Day, and uh, I, I Buddy Emmons? No, I, okay.
1: should, I shouldn't. They they had burned the candle at both ends. I'll just okay. say that yeah. you know, uh, Pete Drake showed up on time. He yeah. he had a smile on his face. He was. Yeah. a... He joined. He helped them out. You know, he and
0: he played the steel.
1: And they needed a steel guitar, and they didn't want really a lot of steel guitar yet. Right. But right. they wanted that sound, uh-huh. and he fit the bill perfectly. Okay. And uh, the first three records he played on were number one records, country okay. records.
0: What What would those have been like? Who was he cutting with? One in those was days?
1: called uh, 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 "Don't Let Me Cross Over" with Carl and Pearl and Butler. Was number one record. I, I'm not sure of the sequence of these things now. Yeah. I'm, one rose in the baby Ruth with George Hamilton the first. Oh, okay. And when you say number one country records, those things to have a number one country record when I started doing sessions in 1964 you didn't have to sell 50,000 records right I mean you know that would be laughable I mean they dropped, used to drop artists not anymore <laughs> well not anymore before the industry imploded a yeah. few uh, two or three years ago yeah If you did, they could sign a new artist and you had to sell more more than a million records to stay on the label right. the first album out but 50,000 was a pretty big deal to see yeah yeah sure so these are not in the main in the big scheme of things. I get things, it, I get know.
0: it. But still, like, relative to other things, like a number, relative, record's yeah. a number one record a number
1: one record, man. So Pete Drake had played on three number ones and they liked him and they liked his personality. He, so he he was a dominant force and, and yeah. Hal Rugg, great player yeah. Hal Rugg, yeah. was here and, and he was getting some sessions but for some reason he didn't ignite. Huh. Uh, and, Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: Then in nineteen sixty four, when I came along, it was the year of explosion. There yeah. were about five major players came along. I mean, not just I was the, the steel player. Weldon Myrick came in about another less than a year later and cut a, a major record with Connie Smith called "Once a Day" and right. and I'll Come Running, which further uh, solidified my standing of, of, of us putting new sounds of the steel guitar into the picture and right. into the mix and uh, luck. Is that intersection of opportunity and preparation, and totally. you, you you collide at that intersection of look. Yeah. And if you don't have, you know, all I wanted was an opportunity. Just let me have my foot in the door. Right. I don't ask for anything but that. And, right. And if and they then didn't I'll like what it I there. had yeah. to offer, then they weren't, weren't gonna call me. Yeah. But give me a chance because yeah. I had all these ideas. I really yeah. did. And and uh, so that that all those uh, uh, elements collided at that one intersection and. And I made the most of it. I knew once I got my foot in the door, man, they'd have to, they'd have to drag me out screaming. I was never going to leave sessions because <laughs> that was what I dreamed of six or seven years earlier. Right, man.
0: right. When you started that string of, well, I mean, it basically like went for your entire career. But like at that point, what were some of the big records that you were playing on, like early on, in, in so '64, '65. What
1: with the, well, the first major record I played on that I, I was I was on a number one record or two before this, but they were in, I mean the steel guitar was you wouldn't know there's a steel guitar and right. girl on the billboard with Dale Reeves, but I played on that. Okay. That was my first number one record. Okay, I played a little gimmicky sound to cover up a ex, ex, expletive that really that they couldn't have on the radio at that time. was <laughs> distortion on my Freak. steel, it was a it was like a backward, you know that kind really. Of. So that was my contribution, but it was my first number one record. <laughs> But a song in 1965 I cut with Warner Mac. He was on Decca Records Yeah, called The Bridge Washed Out. Okay. Uh, I in, introduced an entirely new sound, a new way to play the steel guitar on records, and, uh, and it just caught fire. The record was an instant hit, of course, but, but uh, steel players, it became the dominant style for about two years. Mm-hmm. And Weldon Myrick, and, uh, who was coming on strong too as a session player, and Al Rugg, Both adopted the style, and and, uh, but among the three of us, (laughs) within two years, it was dead, I mean, the style. But the muted style that you heard... uh, What what are
0: the hallmarks of that, like when you talk about that particular... It's
1: a muted style of playing the notes. Uh,
0: This was something that you were working on, developing on your own, like just... Kind of,
1: and nobody had done this on records, not in a, in a really inventive style work where, where the steel was a significant, significant part. And, right, right. And the steel was that record. Besides Warren Mac, I mean, it was essentially the steel guitar and Warren Mac. But Grady Martin, who was the top session leader in the world, and uh, all the eighteen players were on that session. I was the so they ex- I was the only new guy on the block, and right. And so they they noticed. They, they noticed too, yeah, and I yeah. and Grady started calling me on a lot of sessions. And, okay. And we were all. I was part of the team after that.
0: Right. Uh, what do you remember about working with Grady Martin? Like, what? Um, aside from him being an incredible guitar player,
1: oh, he was he was the best teacher in the world. He was he was the most important, in my opinion, session player ever in Nashville. He he was the cohesion. He was the cement that 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 made this all work among the triumvirate of the three major producers who who were the initial factors. In in country music becoming the modern entity, and that the three producers were Owen Bradley, Chet Atkins, and Paul Cohen, yeah, who uh, had given given Owen Bradley his job, right? So that was Cap Records, Decca Records, and RCA Records. Uh, without Grady Martin, this doesn't this falls apart because he kept it all together. He was a guy who,
0: like personally, you mean? Like oh yeah, and I okay. mean his
1: his uh, personality was so dominant. Uh, beyond his playing, well, yeah. he controlled the sessions, but in a in a good fashion. He didn't. He wasn't. Uh, he, he could be pretty hard nosed if he wanted to be. If he, you know, he'd tell you what he thought. And he was a big bruiser of a guy. He so was, was he kind of? He was intimidating. Was he kind of producing these sessions, even if he, he wasn't? He actually producer? was. Now that you mentioned that. Uh, I'll tell you I mean, for that sure. That sounds like
0: producing to me. If he's I'll
1: tell you for certain, uh, all the Columbia Records, I started doing a lot of Columbia Sessions. He was leader on air. He didn't play unless he was leader. Right. So he wouldn't, you couldn't book him as a side man. He okay. had to be leader. Yeah. And the two, there were two, two co-producers of all the Columbia Sessions at that time, uh, two guys named Don Law and Frank Jones. Uh-huh. They were the top producers of Columbia Records. In Nashville. Yeah. And I, my memory is very clear. Every, after every take of every major singer we were cut recording, they came out and they would ask say, to Grady, what do you think, Grady? They didn't produce. They just, they depended on it. He was doing the producing, yes. Yeah, yeah. And he, he, he helped all this unit together. He helped the musicians, uh, uh, their lo- loyalty, and he was a really good player. Yeah. He had good ideas, and he was uh, unselfish. I mean, when a new guy like myself came along... He would insist that I play. Right. He he, say, L- was sure he he. Was he older than you? Oh yeah, Grady was. Oh yeah, he, sure. He was like, already su- substantially in his older probably than you. Forties early, oh, late thirties, okay. early forties. He, okay. He was the the patriarch, but he was a. I mean, he was a intimidating character. I mean, physically yeah. too. Yeah. So uh, we not only respected him uh, as a musician and, and leader, but you know, if he got angry with you, man, you. Better be careful. He could hurt you. What would make him angry? What would you have to do to this off? Ignorance or, or not paying attention. Oh, okay. Not yeah. doing your job on the session, being on yeah. the telephone when it's time to cut the record. Right. Uh,
0: just the things that you shouldn't, just common uh, sense things and, you shouldn't and,
1: do. And, not, and he hated you trying to copy somebody else. He would go ballistic. He, I don't I'll call you for that. I call you for your ideas. If you can't play them, get the hell out and I'll hire somebody right. else. Right. He was... He was unflinching, huh. and and there was no compromise about musical integrity. Yeah, and yeah. for that reason, he was he was always and, and so he was my best teacher. Nice. I didn't yeah. I didn't adopt his tactics, but <laughs> but do, <laughs> right. don't ask for any compliments from him because right. he would he didn't give compliments. Okay, okay. <laughs> you know he was
0: just getting hired is the compliment. That
1: was the ultimate compliment. Yeah, right. He yeah. told me one day on a session there was a singer on. Uh, Columbia Records named Tommy Collins, yeah. great songwriter, great singer. And he, uh, I, I don't know the song, but I was doing the intro and, and I kind of blew the intro for a couple of times and and Grady put his guitar down and got up and here are all the top players in Nashville mm-hmm. on this session. And he very loudly said, Lloyd, if I wanted Jimmy Day or Buddy Emmons, I'd call them. He said, I called you for your ideas. You got a thousand ideas floating around your head if you just relax and play them. And that's all he said, Ben. But That was, is good advice. It was, uh, I wanted to, you know, I was so humiliated, but but embarrassed too. And, and I never, again, and that was 1965, and okay. I never, ever tried to play like anybody again.
0: That's a great lesson.
1: It was the best lesson. I, nobody could have given me a better lesson than that. Because had he not said that, and if I hadn't have followed my own uh muse about my own ideas, then yeah, yeah. then uh, chances are I wouldn't have become the top player yeah. on, uh, on Steel Guitar on Sessions, and chances are my career might have, uh, you know, Petered anything you can yeah. form any kind of scenario, but, <laughs> but it, it might have not gone anywhere, and I might have just disappeared from the scene in a year or two, right. I don't know.
0: Could you tell me, around that era, you started working... Constantly, like you were basically working as much as you wanted, right? Or like every day that you could possibly Gosh. be in the studio. Not only every day,
1: there. three and four sessions a day.
0: Yeah, um, were you hopping between studios all the time too? Right. With your with your gear, you'd have to. Right. Tear we down. didn't have
1: did You you carried right. your own. <laughs> yeah. Everybody uh, did. They uh, wouldn't
0: have amps at the studio for you? You'd have to bring well, your
1: own amp? Well, I'd always carried my amp because I, they yeah, didn't have the, the kind of speakers that steel players like, JBL JBLs. speakers. yeah, yeah. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I had my own amp.
0: And um, so were you using that Double Neck Gibson at this, or the Bigsby, I mean, at, the, at that I point? I only used
1: it for the first nine months and then shot Jackson. By then I'd become uh, an entity on uh, as yeah. a steel player. I mean, so it was to their advantage to have me as their, one of their... So you were a full signatory. So I, I mean, they furnished everything. They gave okay. me everything from then you know. on.
0: and you and you were playing a full double neck showbud. Yeah, in, he made in that he made
1: my first real double neck showbud in okay in nineteen uh, November of nineteen
0: sixty five. Yeah, and, and were you playing much C six anymore at that point? Or I, I was
1: doing a good bit of C six. Yes, you actually, were. Okay. Uh, yeah. Relative to the E ninth, I was still playing a minimal amount, but uh-huh. but enough to keep me interested in the yeah. C six. Yeah. My experience with the C six was on, on recording sessions. They didn't like that tuning. The producers didn't, and and the musicians didn't. Because it sounded only dated steel or players. Something? Only steel players is that right? The produ- the musicians and this, and Grady particularly. Man, that's that old timey right. tuning. Yeah. What he's talking about was this were the sixth and seventh notes of those chords. Yeah. And they didn't like it. They thought uh-huh. it was hokey. They thought it was ancient, old, and they wanted this modern they, sound. Right? They wanted the modern sound. The E 9th
0: At what year was it when Shobud or when you asked Shobud to build you that single neck guitar in a double neck frame?
1: <laughs> that was. I asked him to take the C six neck off of my guitar in nineteen seventy two. I had a. Okay. A Shobud Baldwin actually. Yeah. yeah. And and that's when I had made the decision. I, I I want to keep the width of the double neck guitar because of the comfort right and i thought well let's see if i do this and I need something to risk my arm on. Maybe I can get him to put some sort of cushion on it for me. Yeah. So I went to shot with the idea, and, and he was horrified. He said, oh, man, <laughs> we'll ruin this. You'll ruin that guitar. He said, I'll build you whatever you want. What do you want, single neck, double neck, triple neck? I'll build you anything. Were he they said,
0: building any singles at the time? Or oh, yeah, sure. They were, okay. They
1: built whatever anybody wanted. They were the biggest company. in a steel guitar manufacturer in the world right. in the 60s. Yeah. And then Emmons company came along. They They were the two. Yeah. dominant ones until MSA started building guitars. But his idea was, hey, you 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 ruined a guitar. I mean, if you want a single neck. He just couldn't conceive of right. a guitar with a pad on it yet. See, that was yeah. Yeah. that was about a year in the future. And yeah, The worker who disassembled the C6 neck for me and had the parts, put them in a clear plastic bag, and he told the guy, he said, put those in that closet over there because Lloyd <laughs> will be back, to be back in them. three days to, to have it put back on. <laughs> <laughs> and I never did, of course.
0: <laughs> I wonder if you could just give me a like a bit of a picture of... You're doing all these sessions like one after the other and and running between studios. Uh, were you always setting up as a band in the one room in general? Was your amp right there beside you? Yes. I'm just trying to get a picture of what you... They were
1: all live sessions in those days. Yeah. And, and, and it's not as uh, hectic as it sounds because we didn't have that many recording studios in that era. We only had... Right. Uh, Bradley's Barn was built in 1965, yep. which was out of town, about 30 minutes right. out of Nashville. But there was light traffic in Nashville, also. Yep. There, there was no problem getting there. Yep. And so, if you had a six o'clock and you were at RCA or Columbia yep. from two to five, and you had a six six p.m. At, at Bradley's Barn, you had an hour, and you barely had time to get you a sandwich on the way and make it. Right. But but now keep in mind, Steve, that. That often I'd do four sessions in one day in the same studio. We didn't. We weren't constantly weren't moving every okay. three hours. Yeah. But each session was uh, designated for three hours. That's the way our it had evolved, and yeah. and and the way it had to be a, a rigidly ad- adopted recording uh, f- thing in Nashville because otherwise it would have been chaotic. And and mm-hmm. they there wasn't just one group of eighteen players. By the way, there were probably two yeah. or three. Yeah. And they're all interchangeable, but I mean, they didn't say, give me that one A-10. I mean, they just got players, but there were A-list players that were called, you know. Uh, If if steel guitar, they probably had two or three players on the list, and they went down the list if one couldn't do it, maybe, unless they had to have that specific player. So, uh, you know, it it would get kind of uh, mixed in that. Uh, configuration and the session
0: was all back in those days as well was basically three hours is that it was
1: very regimented we yeah. had a three hour recording session uh, from 10 a.m to 1 p.m we had one hour for lunch yeah 2 p.m we cut from two to five yeah we had a dinner break from six to nine and at nine o'clock you had another break for whatever. And ten o'clock. If you're working ten p.m., you work ten a. ten oh, p.m. to a, one a.m. Really, you would do a ten p.m. session. Oh yeah, we did. That was regular. That was routine. Really? Well,
0: after being broke for five or six years, you were probably. Like, I, I, I
1: wasn't going to get tired. Yeah, man. <laughs> I was. I was where I wanted to be. Yeah. I, I, I looked. I literally couldn't wait each morning to get to sessions. I just it right. was it was the most. So wonderful you, thing oh, that's
0: awesome when you played on a song like d-i-v-o-r-c-e i don't need to know all the specifics but like would your amp be like right beside you there so you yeah, could control uh, the sound and exactly. it would be close mic'd i guess it, it was sure sounds like it was. and it was
1: right i always kept my amplifier at my right ear Oops, excuse me i hit the mic that's okay uh so uh, I would keep one he- earphone, one headphone off okay. my right ear, so I yeah. could hear my amp, yeah. and the left earphone was on. So I'm hearing the mix. Yeah. Now the mix was in, in that era of uh, when I started it was four tracks, and yeah. quickly uh, by 1968, when we cut the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album with the Birds, it had just become eight track. Oh, really? That was eight yeah. Track? It, okay. So it was pretty well. The, when you cut, when you heard a song back on playback, it was mixed. It was done. Yeah. yeah. So you didn't hear the, the sterility of what you might hear now in bits and pieces. Right. Everything was there. I mean, yeah.
0: so what about like all those super lush ones, like with all the background singers? Was that all happening live? Everything?
1: Yeah, not not, not the strings. And most often the singers, background singers were there though. Yeah. The, really? The, we had three groups. We had the Jordanaires Jordanaires, who were, yeah. and the Anita Kerr singers yeah. and the Nashville edition of Herschel Wig- Wigginson.
0: Okay. So you'd have to be playing. Pretty quietly in the room, I guess you wouldn't be isolated. Yeah, at all. you learn, you
1: know, you adapt, yeah, you right. because yeah, you can't. You learn that's part of your fundamental yeah. training in yeah. the studio. If, if you don't, you better learn those qualities real quick. You don't overplay fundamentally. Yeah, first thing you learn is, is to underplay, you, right? You, uh, steel players are you tourists, you know, overplaying, right? In studio, they'll throw you out for, uh, yeah, don't do that, and don't play over a singer's lyrics. Yet. You had to make the fills in between those, but you make them significant. And it was um, a pretty stereotyped uh, think way we recorded. And they were pretty s- fundamental songs in those days. They yeah. hadn't got too complex mostly yet.
0: When you're doing those kind of sessions like, say, that, that Tammy Wynette song, where that's okay. got such a signature sound and tone and and break and all that kind of stuff. Well, like, no,
1: uh, everything is has its own... Uh, explanation that particular session yeah. I was only called because Pete Drake he was he was the normal player on her sessions I, I did record probably 28 songs total of her career but yeah. but Pete Drake's on most of the big records right that particular song I had this new pedal okay uh, an E-D-F change that nobody had ever heard and used and I just had it on my guitar for about two days yeah and Billy Sherrill was the uh, the record producer at, at Columbia by then he was the Head of Columbia, he was the one producing all those great George Jones, uh, yeah. Tammy Wynette songs, Charlie Rich. Yeah, but he was uh, the best producer I ever worked for. He was a genius. Okay. This guy, he he literally choreographed all this stuff. He and he was a great writer. You know, he wrote, yeah. yeah, or co-wrote most of those hit songs he was recording with the artist. So he he was prolific, and and he would kind of not tell you how to play, but he'd hum you like a note. Mm-hmm uh Play uh, this line, make and you add your magic to it. Da yeah. da da, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, he just ha- ha- hum you a simple note. Right? Yeah, uh, a little four or five or note pattern. Yeah, that's the way I want you to start it, and you make it make it special, make yeah. it come alive. It might be a little too polished and cosmopolitan, you know, for uh-huh. a lot of people, because it'd gotten away from the the kind of rough hewn edgy stuff we were doing with Johnny Paycheck on Little Darling. But on the Tammy Wynette thing, he heard me doodling around with this. I was sliding around with this trying to get the intonation because it was it becomes complicated with that pedal. It uh,
0: so for non-steel players, this is a. It's a knee lever. It Or, 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 the, the, or this was a pedal for you, or a knee lever. Knee it lever? was a knee lever. Okay, and it raises one st- one string or two strings by one semitone. And, and it e yeah F, becomes a right.
1: totally different chord, and that's yeah. what I'd been looking for all my whole life. And it just, okay. the light bulb turned on one day, and I said, I know how to do this. And so and you I, went
0: to Showbud and said, Can yes. you give me a get me a lever put me there? this." Okay, on and cool.
1: And they did, and it worked. Yeah. And yeah. And so he hears, Billy Sherrill heard me doodling around, and it just so happened, that it was coincidentally on the Tammy Wynette session I'd been called for because Pete Drake was already booked somewhere else. Yeah. And it just so happened to be the song D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Yeah. And he said, what is that you're playing? I said, well, it's a new thing I'm, because he hadn't heard that sound. Right. He said, well, that's our intro. He said, he play that da-da-da-da-da-da, but do it with that sound, whatever you're doing. So he gave me the notes, the really? first four or five notes. Yeah and And he had the guitar player, Jerry Kennedy, with a uh kind of a um tremolo guitar playing uh, yeah. playing the line before me da 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 and then the slide comes in with that new sound, yeah <laughs> I don't think he liked steel guitar he he liked Pete Drake because Pete kept it just four or five little licks that he he could put those licks. Billy could use those as flourishments and, right. and, and uh, embellishments for his songs. Yeah. And I don't think he likes steel guitar okay. really.
0: With a tune like that, as you're working that stuff out, and you've got your new pedal, and you're kind of figuring all that whole thing out, like how many takes would you have done? Do you figure like one or two, or is it more like no five more, or six? no more than two? And that's everything—the the backup singers, everything would have been there, and she would have sung her her yes. vocal live with you guys. Absolutely. as well. Absolutely,
1: yeah. And that's why that's why those things when they worked, they had this magical quality because they they weren't. Processed sounding. They yeah. they weren't I'll say. A contrived. They were just yeah. real. They had that, and and everybody is uh, feeling the same. It's like playing live, you know, really yeah. in a on a stage, and and everybody's kind of oscillating to the same thing in their head. And yeah, and if you can do that without putting a part on ten days later or a month later and having some, uh, you know, it gets so um, uh, sterile sounding uh, yeah. modern music because it's. It's not really music anymore. It's uh, manufactured uh, notes and and noise.
0: Yeah, and the Charlie Pride sessions that that first one you did with him is. It's called it's something about the snakes, right? What what is that song? Uh, the, the snakes, snakes crawl. Uh, at night. The
1: snakes crawl at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> what a song, a song title, guy.
0: Yeah, it's a crazy tune, and the and the sound is so killer on that though. Like I, is I, that right? to that. I oh man, I listened to it again last night too, and uh, w- w- so were you given pretty free reign then? I was in given those free reign
1: completely, yeah. Except the what I described on the Billy Sherrill sessions, and
0: because the way that you play in that era, it's not like. If somebody's thinking of just like average steel guitar, that's not what they're getting with you. You're get you're like doing all kinds of crazy stuff that nobody else is doing. You're, you're I'm doing an a artist. Lot of chroma- <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm doing like a lot of chromatic stuff that's totally out there. I was doing everything.
1: I was doing exactly what I felt yeah. and what I thought. And, and so the, the producers would be
0: would be they hired me. For that's that. why they hired you. That's and awesome. they would
1: tell me. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I never. Never asked the producers how do you you got an idea how you want me to go with this song except two times I remember asking a a producer different producers in different times where I wasn't certain about how to proceed with a song and I said have you got any idea how you want me to uh, approach think about this approach it. and and both times I got said no, that's what we hire you for your ideas.
0: <laughs> a lot of help
1: you and are today. Buddy. <laughs> today, if you said, "Hey, I got an idea," they'd say, "Keep it." You know, really, <laughs> just uh, just bad. make it sound like a steel guitar. Don't don't be creative. I've been yeah. told that in modern times. Oh my God. Since I came back to don't sessions, give me any of that Lloyd Green shit. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it, it's um, it's it's took a yeah. Uh, it's a different universe now. It's 180 yep. degrees reversed.
0: And what about your work with Johnny Paycheck? Like. Was was that a real highlight for you? Like,
1: man, it was. Yeah. I, I loved it. And Paycheck said the perfect statement one time in an interview with uh, a disc jockey from WSM. Um, uh, he's a announcer on the Opry. I can't remember his name right now. Mm-hmm. He's still. I mean, he's a major figure today. Uh, and he he was doing a two hour interview with Paycheck, and and he asked Paycheck the, that question. He said. Can you tell me the synergy? What 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 was it that made that so special between you and Lloyd Green Yeah, on those little darling records? Yeah. And Paycheck, he said, just put his arms on the table and kind of his eyes narrowed and almost like angry and leaned across the table <laughs> at him and said, Lloyd played with an attitude and I sang with an attitude. Yeah. It was that simple.
0: It comes across, man.
1: And I thought I couldn't have expressed that any better. That's yeah. precisely, that's what we did. Yeah, yeah. It was an attitude. And, totally. And he was hungry and I was... It sounds that I was that enjoying way. the it, attention.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like it's, with some singers, it feels like they've got a short window of of that kind of like. It's different with instrument instrumentalists. I mean, but with singers, it seems like the, a lot of them kind of have a short span of like where they're really effective. But that period with Johnny Paycheck, when you're playing with him and doing those sessions, well, it's like you guys are both it, was, like killing it was it
1: was different than what I was cutting with Chet Atkins. It was different than what I was cutting yeah. with anybody.
0: So where were you... You were doing those... RCAB. That was all at RCAB, yeah.
1: Absolutely, and... Do
0: you have any favorites of the Johnny Paycheck stuff?
1: Oh, gosh. They, they were all, man. But, but, <laughs> but of course, Jukebox Charlie, man, yeah. and, and Motel Time Again. And oh, yeah.
0: Was, that was an early one, right? Motel Time yeah, Again.
1: Yeah, that, that, all that stuff. See, all his uh, polished stuff came later with Billy Sherrill producing. Okay. Uh, take This Job and Shove It, which was yeah. the, his biggest record. But that doesn't resemble the early stuff we're doing. He, no, his voice different. does... But the music had become a uh, cosmopolitan, slicker, yeah, and slicker, yeah. yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know how he felt about it because I didn't record with him in in that era. He didn't, Billy didn't, as I said, didn't use me. He used Pete Drake usually, and yeah, I'm sure Paycheck in the, in his latter days thought of what we did in the early days as that that was the trailblazing stuff yeah. because that's what. Scholars and writers, when they come to Nashville and interview me now and want to uh, talk about the era, yeah, they don't ask me about Chet Atkins or or Owen Bradley Sessions, mm-hmm. or or Columbia Records. They ask me about that Little Darling stuff. Wow, how, that was totally different than what anybody else was cutting in Nashville. That had that edge. It was raw. They it did, was yeah. It yeah. was just exciting. What was it? I said, well, that's what we were, that was the intention. <laughs> I don't think they sold many records, but, but it got tons of airplay. Every yeah. ever disc jockey in America played anything I was on, and particular little Darling stuff, and, right. and, and Paycheck became a major, almost an underground figure before yeah. he became a major uh, recording artist yeah, right. for Columbia Records later.
0: So when you would, went from a session from from that kind of a thing, where you're kind of like just given or... Visceral, like, it's yeah. visceral, yeah. And then maybe in the same day going to a session with Chet Atkins, would exactly. you have to like really switch
1: gears? Exactly. No, but, but there's so no what, problem. How would you it, approach it, was, it differently? Just compartmentalize it. I mean, mm-hmm. what I did and what all the good session players learned to do was you walked out of a session after three hours and you tried to erase that from your mind. I mean, not right. er, not because I didn't forget anything, yeah. but for the time being, I didn't go into the next session thinking about what I just played. Right, right. Everything was fresh because okay. you had a different set of musicians. Yeah, normally you're in a different studio. Might be, yep. could be the same studio, but always the musicians were going to change. The use, musicians we used in the Little Darling sessions were not the same. I never worked yeah, with that configuration guys. of musicians on any other sessions.
0: Right. Was the experience of working with Chet Atkins as a producer was that like a positive one as well? Like he,
1: well, he was a nice guy and he was, a, yeah. you know, a great guitar player, but it was boring. Really. Oh, I thought it was boring, yeah. His sessions were boring to me. Okay. I cut a lot of them.
0: Just because they were very conservative and you knew so that conservative you had to be understated. And I, I and recorded
1: with uh, so many people for him, uh, Dolly Parton, Porter Wagner. Well, actually, Bill Ferguson produced yeah. those. But but for Chet, I recorded with Hank Snow, and yeah. his name is on everything just about, even though he even he's though not he the were, producer. Yeah, so right. I, but uh, the sessions I did for him, I, I didn't feel were very exciting, not uh-huh. compared to... A lot of the other stuff because right. he he was not going to
0: you weren't going to cut loose on a Chet Atkins no, session.
1: No, no, right. no. He didn't. He wouldn't say no. I think, but it was just the uh, his attitude was he was this uh, he was more sophisticated. You know, yeah, yeah, you just felt like you don't want to get get too crazy with him because if you listen to his playing, it's it's a it's comfortable, all yeah. great player, but. But it's, it's comfortable playing. He yeah. it's not adventurous.
0: I mean, it is in in a way, but it's well, a all extremely conservative. Out, right? He's not. Sounds, he's not going out on a limb like you like you, you did on a lot you of those, session, those sessions. Those other sessions. Yeah.
1: So I mean, I'm I'm not being uh, disparaging. I mean, he was uh, Chet Atkins was Chet Atkins. I mean, yeah. Gosh
0: and he but he he would cut his sessions totally live as well like it wouldn't be any different
1: I, most of them yeah, yeah. by the time 8 track came along they had more um more uh, overdubbing flexibility trapping. because yeah. then you you had some tracks to work with that you could right. do uh overdubs but largely yeah man it was it was the the way of the of the era everybody you cut live yeah. and you you had to do it right, yeah. Because they and they would splice some of the taste, but if you overdub something, everybody's live, and and there was leakage in, into the microphones, yeah. yeah and it. you'd have these ghosts coming through. So you had to really be on your toes and yeah. try to do it correctly. Yeah. yeah.
0: Would Would it ever happen where you really felt like you could have done a better solo, but but they were just like, no, that's that's it, man. We're gonna yep. move on. And and,
1: yeah. and 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 I'm not sure that I was correct either sometimes i was but right. but still they uh, when i said man i can I, I, let me let me have one more i got it uh, just a, a little better and i've had them say no man this is you're kidding this is it yeah yeah and, I, I, and sometimes they let me but,
0: but but if they did let you does that mean that the whole band would have to go again
1: no they didn't, they weren't going to do that if they they were they were sold on the track right they liked the track then that had to feel or whatever they wanted then they would let you Sometimes overdub your solo or, yeah. or fills or something, and then they would the engineer would splice the tape because oh, okay. it was analog tape. Right. And and if they ne- if necessary they would splice the tape and put yeah. that segment in to try to get rid of some of the go. I don't know how they did it, but right, right. I mean, you probably know better than I do as an engineer. But so
0: the session for like just jumping from there to the sweetheart of the rodeo session, which is one of the the the, the probably the biggest record that you're known for for whatever reason I don't know if that's not that really ironic or, what's that <laughs> well
1: that's ironic because y- it, it wasn't a big record by the way and, and when it at came,
0: the time yeah
1: it was not a no, big record I no. know
0: um, it sort of it developed this cult. whole thing yeah, right so. but at the time um, it must have been a different experience working with these guys from California that were like rock guys yeah they uh, they probably would have been totally fish out of water in that scenario right
1: you got it uh, diagnosed Exactly. They walked in the studio that Monday morning, or Saturday morning. We started on a Saturday, I think, uh-huh. in Columbia Studio A, the big studio upstairs, the new one. And, yeah. And they walked in with cowboy boots on and, and little uh, <laughs> cowboy shirts. I mean, they thought they had come to Nashville and Wild West, I think. I don't know what they thought. And, and, you, you know, guys they, are all in jeans they, they and T-shirts. They had guys that came in with a, two cases of Gallo wine, this awful stuff that would give you the worst headache in the world. Oh <laughs> Must had God. all kind of uh, contamination in it of lead, you know. And that stuff would be drunk all during the day, and a little little dope being smoked all day. Sure. I didn't smoke, I, I didn't use drugs, so uh-huh. I could I get high from the fumes sometimes. They'd smoke in the studio. I mean, God. yeah,
0: back in those days, right? Yeah.
1: And, and spoke dope at the studio. Those guys did. Sure. So, but but they were really nice. I liked them. And, and the very first thing when we started running the first song, which is on on the Sweethearts Rodeo album, uh, "You Ain't Going Nowhere," the yeah. Bob Dylan song. You kick
0: it off, man.
1: Before I kicked it off, they're standing all four of them: Graham Parsons and and Roger McGuinn and. And uh, Chris Hillman and uh, I don't know who the fourth was. They were standing over me, you know, and, and so we're going to run it down. I, 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 we listened to the kind of a, the Dylan record, I guess.
0: Oh, yeah, they had the Acetates, right? Because like, that was an unpublished Dylan tune, I think.
1: Oh, then I, I don't remember exactly. I, yeah. I, yeah, they must have had some sort of reference. Or they could have just ran it by themselves. I'm maybe yeah. they are. i sure they already knew it. So I, I, my memory is not accurate on this part. Segment, but when we got ready to run it down with the band, because uh, they'd run it down, and we did a quick chord chart. Yeah, number system we use mathematical yeah. system, and I said, "Well, where do you where do you want me to fill?" And they said, "And use it in Houston, everywhere." I said, "Hey, my kind of guys, <laughs> turn it on." And so I was at home, man. You know, it was a different experience. You're right; I yeah. never recorded. With a group like that, uh, at that point, uh-huh. and and I was used to doing uh, the regimented where we had to do four songs right. in three hours. Right, that was the routine. And so,
0: how was it different with with these oh,
1: guys? Oh, you'd sat spend all and day and and get up some sort of a motive or motivation to cut whatever they're going to cut. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, we we cut only f- in, in an entire week. We only cut five songs. I think four songs from five songs. Right, right. So. I'm getting paid for every three hours. So you're I'm, just
0: kind of sitting around waiting and happy. Yeah, to, it, it, there was a lot it of It got a
1: little tedious for me because I'm yeah. used to action, and, and they were they had a new uh, way to cut like they did in California, the rock groups, I think, of the era. And, right.
0: So h- how was that different from what you were used to, what was going well, on uh, technically? Well, the
1: fact that, that there was not uh, uh, one song every 45 minutes that they... They weren't interested in... They weren't looking at the clock. Right. And, and regular sessions that we did, Nashville sessions, boy, the clock was the, the key. I mean, you had to adhere to the clock. Yeah, yeah. And that, you had to have those four songs in three hours, sometimes five.
0: So were you brought in for a week off the top like they yep. said, we need you for a week, and you're like, What What the hell well, do you need a week for I, when I
1: could? There was, I had a lot of sessions booked, so I sandwiched mine, and they didn't okay. use any other steel player while they were here, so right, so they just used my time. They probably were in the studio more than I was there, but yeah, but I worked from Saturday to the following Friday with them, and then I played the Opry with them, the Grand Ole Opry with them on which which was an aborted experience that became a Legendary experience, yeah, because they got yelled
0: at and booed and stuff, right? Oh, or, they got
1: yeah, humiliated and booed crazy by hippies. the audience. And, yeah. Oh, and it was it was embarrassing. Oh no, for me and for them, you know, I, right? Were you? I like was there two and three sessions, a day.
0: rearranging and rearranging, or was it just not very productive? Like, what what was the reason that it took so long?
1: Because that's the way they recorded. They weren't interested in. in they thought that's, uh, they, they wouldn't, uh, it was anathema and, and a foreign concept to go right. in session, a session and, and have a regimented, got to do a song every 45 minutes, because right. Columbia yeah. Records gave them carte blanche. They had, they were. Unlimited they, budget, right? They had a, well, I don't know if it was unlimited, but they had a heck of a lot bigger yeah. budget than regular country labels did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had, they called the shots what they wanted. So they had a, a, a lot of uh, Leeway prestige to, in, with, uh, with Columbia Records. Yeah. Yeah, and nobody questioned them. When they said they wanted to work on the sing on the Grand Ole Opry sometime during the week, about Wednesday or Thursday, they said, "Graham Parsons said, Boy, 'Boy, it'd be cool if we could play sing on the Opry Saturday night, wouldn't it?' So they had, they were all kind of executives from CBS milling about, hanging. Oh, around. really? Somebody without saying a word went five minutes later. He came back and said. You guys are on the Opry Saturday, Grand Ole Opry Saturday <laughs> night. Uh, that's the way. Uh, Crazy. Like, when they showed
0: up in Nashville, were they fully, like, did they have that sound in their mind ready to go? Because it was no. a big departure for them. Like, they no. weren't a country band that before was, that. That
1: was, the, what we created was what became the sound. They didn't know what they were going to do. They, they, and the I mean, whole they thing knew their sound, but they didn't know how it was going uh, melt, to meld in with, yeah. with the few players they used in Nashville. Me and... John uh, Hartford played a little right, bit on Hartford, banjo, yeah. and a couple things, and fiddle on a And Clarence big... White
0: was in from their camp, or was he around here?
1: Oh, no, Clarence White was from California. He wasn't okay. on the album at that point. They put him on later. and Oh, really? And, okay. Because uh, you he... guys are on
0: songs together, so they did his stuff out in California or something? Yeah,
1: and, he, uh, and I flew to California. They flew me to California to finish up the album with him. I did 100 oh. years from now in California. Uh, oh, you did? One weekend when I could schedule it when... The, they would used J D. Mannis on, because they wanted to do the entire. They wanted me to fly to California and finish the album, right? The whole album, yeah. And and I couldn't because okay. I didn't have time. I mean, I, I was You're too busy. sandwiching and moving some sessions to do what I did with them in Nashville, and, and and I I was booked in those days three and four months in advance. Yeah, I'd have 30, 40, 50 sessions already on the books, and <laughs> and I I couldn't just ethically cancel. Everything yeah, to course. go to California and, and record the rest of them with them. So they hired J D. Manis to finish the album. Yeah, and then except for the last song, they said they called me. And they said, "We got to have you on this last song a hundred years from now." And I'm glad
0: they did, man, because that steel solo is ridiculous.
1: Is right? <laughs> well, I, I was able to do it, and that's when, when I met Clarence White. Oh, and okay. I loved him. I loved his playing, man. Yeah, it's he was phenomenal. So
0: cool. Both you guys are like ripping on that song.
1: Well, we had a great time. And uh-huh. The the real uh, release of that album is the third release that has all the outtakes. I think oh, where right. he and I play an instrumental together. Yeah, that yeah. we just wrote on the session that right. that the drummer got credit for, <laughs> but it's okay.
0: So during those sessions, was like Graham Parsons' tenure in that band was basically just a few months, right? Like, and he <clears> kind <throat> of like. Was it the driving force behind that record, even though they took his vocals off? A good chunk of them was well, there... That was
1: because of contracts, uh, I, right from my understanding. Yeah, and I, I he was the I felt like he was the dominant he was the personality here.
0: Yeah, it seems like that.
1: I uh, that was just my sense. I mean, it was Roger McGuinn's essentially his. I, I don't know how what role Chris Hillman had at that point, but maybe it was all. I mean, I, I, I don't really know, ex- except that I just it seemed like uh, decisions were being made about things and Graham seemed to be at the...
0: At the helm of the
1: that yeah. kind of stuff. I, that was my my impression.
0: Was there tension in the band at that point? Because he didn't last. No. Like, oh, okay. Oh, so they no, were just...
1: They- Having a ball. They were everybody's having a ball. <laughs> everybody's smoking a little dope, <laughs> yeah, except sure. Me that'll and, and drinking that, that bad Gallo wine. I, I did drink a little Gallo wine a couple of times and got awful headache. Oh no, said, that'll I teach think, you. I, I think I'll uh, pass on this stuff.
0: And and gear wise, what were you playing on that record? Because that the tone is is really unmistakable on that album. It, it was
1: my Showbud uh, double neck uh, fingertip. Uh, lightning bolt, so-called designated lightning bolt steel guitar, which is right now in the exhibit at the Country Music Hall. Oh, of fame. okay, that one, yeah. This finishing up the third year of the exhibit of, of the, uh, Dylan the Dylan of Cash and National Cats exhibit. Yeah, yeah. And, and my my amp was a Fender uh, Deluxe. Oh, really? With a twelve-inch JBL speaker. Okay, that was it.
0: Wow, yeah, because it's kind of crunchy. So it, yeah, it's, it sounds a little crunchier than raw. a twin. <laughs> What's that? It's raw and, and yeah, trebly and edgy. You know? Yeah, and you and you weren't using any effect pedals or anything like that. I had
1: no effects pedals. Right. I didn't know what they were.
0: <laughs> there's no like, there's no fuzz or anything on that record at all there's nothing i like don't
1: that. know it, it's not from me not from you <laughs> i didn't have any fuzz i didn't have any devices to use i i just had a steel guitar and an amplifier and yeah, a volume man. control
0: and when that whole session was going down did it feel like anything other than just another session for you yes it did
1: it certainly was unique i knew mm-hmm. there was something very unusual happening but yeah but i couldn't nobody can foresee that this is going to become yeah still talked about and listened to right. 50 years later yeah. you know uh, but I I just knew it was unlike anything I'd been involved in. I didn't particularly think it was good because you know the musicianship was not to the level. I mean of uh, yeah. of precision stuff that I was used to working with right. in studios. But they were they still had their own style and sound. They had a vibe because yeah. they were the basic they were the fundamental group. You know yeah, I mean, yeah. they're the ones who play on and sing on all that stuff. And and Chris Hillman's playing bass and yeah. Roger's probably playing rhythm and. Yeah. And whatever else they did, and
0: but when you did like Hickory Wind, you must have like that's a real classic tune, and such a great performance from Graham too. That yeah. like you must have felt like something was going oh, on. Oh yeah, I
1: that. love that because it's yeah. a great melody, good good melody for yeah. steel guitar. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. And uh, but you know, I didn't know who Graham Parsons was. He was right. to me just was a, just a hippie cat, a hippie cat that I knew and never heard of. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know anything about that culture. Right, because I'd never never been to LA to record yet. Yeah. Till I went out and recorded with them. Yeah. I, and I wasn't listening to that kind of music. not that I was averse to it. I just didn't have time. I was I was focused on everything I was yeah. doing. You're a busy guy. I was a busy guy. And yeah, man. Uh, my loss that I didn't know. I mean, of course he wasn't that, I guess he wasn't a that big a deal. I maybe he was around in LA but but I, it, it only, I don't
0: think he was, you know. I think he was like you know, I don't after think he his, was a big deal. After that. his death he, That's kind he of became a, yeah,
1: a, a, a legendary, bigger yeah. than life figure. Yeah. Uh, the, the the strangeness of uh, what happened to his body in the desert, you know. Yeah. And,
0: Could you tell me what what else you're up to these days aside from I know you're doing that sweetheart of the rodeo revamp kind of thing? But what else takes up your time these days?
1: Well, I, I still do a few sessions. I mean, when uh-huh. I get called, I mean, look, I I'm not the uh, the the hip guy on the block anymore. You know, Russ Paul is probably the top session player not only in Nashville, in the world right now. Uh-huh. Yeah. He plays steel guitar. He's a friend of mine. He's T-Bone Burnett's key guy. He's uh, yeah. Dan Orbach's uh, key guy. I yeah. mean, these are major figures in the world of music. Yeah, And uh, he and Dennis Crouch are like inseparable. I mean, they're on all that stuff together. They are. So I'm I'm the kind of the guy on the outside looking, you know, with his nose pressed to the glass looking in. But uh, that's okay. I had a good career. I don't, I don't need the money. I don't need the uh, ego stroking anymore and and uh, I'm proud of my career but I, I do a, f- a few sessions and when people call me normally now they they know what I do and they it's, it's more of a, a an album a kind of a boutique or a vanity yeah. album or or Americana stuff right yeah so I do enough work to keep
0: do you have any plans to do like a, a full-on Lloyd Green record at some point again
1: I've been asked to do it so much, but uh, actually, Tommy White, the great steel player, my favorite steel player on the planet, and I are going to do an album, an instrumental album, sometime cool. this summer. Hopefully, after, after the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album is finished with J.D. and myself. Yeah. But I'm playing some live gigs around town too. We, we played a live performance uh, recently at the Family Tommy? Wash. No, no. Uh, Ross Paul set it up. Oh. Set it up, and uh, he had me and Billy Sanford. The, the oh, guitar okay. player who yeah, was yeah. my key guy—I mean, that we worked so much stuff and ideas together in the yeah. '60s and '70s—he was leader on all the Billy Sherrill stuff, by right. the way. And he was on, on all the Johnny Paycheck, Little darling stuff too. I had him on those. But we did a, a five-piece guy—a section of me and Russ Paul, Dennis Crouch, yeah. and uh, Jerry uh, Rowe, drummer. He's just—they okay. say the first-call session yeah. drummer yeah, nationally. And Billy Sanford and me, and, and I told Russ Paul, I, I started getting calls. I didn't tell anybody I was going to do it. it my first live performance in seven years. Really? And I said, uh, and it doesn't happen if I don't do it, by the way. So uh, as it turned out, Dan Orbach wrote three country songs and sang for us on the show. And really? They, they couldn't say that he was going to be there. It would have been yeah, mobs. When was this? Uh, about a month ago. and no way. I called Russ and I said, I've already heard from steel players in four different states that heard about this. I said, "You go, how, how many does this place seat?" He said, about 100, maybe 150. Yeah. I said, it's not going to be big enough. Yeah. He said, just relax now, Lloyd. Just play steel. He said, don't worry about it. They never had a crowd that big. It was overflowing. I bet. And they were sat, packed in like sardines, and they were lined up out back. And Are you going to do that again? We're going to do it at the station inn. When? I don't know. It's going to be in the next three or four weeks. Really? And uh, What will it, it
0: be billed as? Like, how do I find out? Oh, oh
1: it's called uh, Russ, uh, Rusty. He called Rusty and the Nashville Cavalcade. That's, how, <laughs> that's okay. how it was billed before that. So I think that's... that's I it. am all over it. Okay. And it'll be uh, a big... Because it'll be over... I told him, I said, it's not going to be big enough. They'll have There'll be twice as many people next time. And there were probably 250 people or more that were trying to get into that into place. Into the family wash? Yeah, and the, <laughs> the, the owner said he said what's going on he said we never Look, had a f-
0: who are you guys
1: <laughs> yeah he didn't they did know who we were me and billy sanford and, oh, and he yeah. said i never heard of you guys and he said we've never had a full house and so <laughs> they sold a lot of food that night and alcohol, I, I guess but yeah man i'm gonna play there the, the 26th of uh this month actually with oh. uh peter cooper he, he was the top writer till he left the Tennessee and the well show. I've done some albums with him but no no this is a different thing he he's going to read a vignette from his book that has me in this vignette yeah. where uh, we're rehearsing this song that we did seven years ago in the station and I, I played with him and the, his band that night yeah. he told me while we were rehearsing Mike Aldridge the great dobro yeah. late dobro player was on the album with us uh, yeah. at least playing that night yeah Said Mike was standing over me, and when I'd play some of those slants and things while we were rehearsing the song, Mike would stop me because Mike played Steel too. Yeah. He was a good Steel player. I know. But he was my first hero as a Dobro player before I ever heard Jerry Douglas and Rob Ikes. And he was the best, uh, you know, I, I played Dobro on all the Don Williams records, so yeah. that captured my attention when right. I heard uh, Mike Aldridge. But he's standing over me as I'm we're rehearsing the song, and he's going to play on it, but he's paying attention to what I'm doing on Steel. And he'd stop me. Peter said, Wait a minute, wait a minute. How'd you do that? And it would be several slaps. I'd show him. He said, Oh, that's cool. I hadn't seen that before. Okay. And we'd start again and do something. I said, Whoa, stop. What, I never heard <laughs> never that before. What is it. that? Everything. And so I told him the second time, and Peter said, He just looked at me. Mike Aldridge did and said, and he said, "Fuck you, Lloyd." And he turned around, and walked <laughs> off. And he said, "He's going to read this. This is in the book. Oh, really? And it's awesome. going to be a, a packed house. The book reading is only going to be about thirty minutes in total, but he's going to have little vignettes that are yeah. written about, uh, read about different people. And I think they're going to interact. And, ah, cool. And as he says the the expletive that Mike said. Yeah, that's in his book. Then the drummer counts it off, and I do the intro to to wine.
0: Oh my God, <laughs> so, that's awesome! Thanks so much, man. I re- appreciate you coming here so much and talking uh, to me about this. Uh, stuff Steve, today. I
1: enjoyed it. I, I know we probably touched on only a brief scratching thing. scratching
0: the surface, man. But 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 it was. I great knew it was
1: going to gonna get wordy like this. That's that's, good. that's what it's all about. That's I don't mean to do it, but I can't. Uh,
0: no, that's why we. The that's why so, we, I do this. You know, I just want to hear people talking about their thing.
1: Well, great, we'll we'll do it again if you want to, to right. uh, go we'll, a little part further. Two. I mean, yeah, part two, and if, <laughs> next time I maybe you just let me hush and let you ask specific questions. No, I like answer. keeping
0: it open and conversational and just going where it leads. That's kind of well. The this idea. Was,
1: this was a, a, a special event for me too because I I didn't know you were a steel player before oh, today. I'm a steel player, so I'm glad to. Yeah. meet a, a brother in, in spirit and, and <laughs> an instrument
0: <laughs> well it's a it's a thrill for me to meet you because you're a, a hero of mine and, thank you and very many much. of my generation that grew up listening to steel and country you know
1: i'm having a ball in my life right now
0: right on well thanks lloyd thank you
1: steve all right
0: all right thanks for listening everybody that guy's done some things hey lloyd green what an honor to have him here i hope you enjoyed that it was uh Just amazing to have him here and get a chance to pick his brain about stuff. Uh, Thanks so much for listening and tune in for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers right here next week. See you then. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research, and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo.